The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. And before we start, 503. Section 503 has finally been published. The final wreck's out. Oh, is that awesome? This is beyond awesome to me. And I know it's going to be to this guest we have today because it is truly an honor to have on the show today First of all, may I say, someone very well-known nationally in the disability community. It is an honor to have the Deputy Assistant Secretary from the U.S. Department of Education. Welcome to the show, Sue Swenson. Thanks, Joyce. Boy, I wish I had a little bit of your energy every day when I came back from a long weekend. (laughs) Hey, Sue, isn't that awesome about 503? I think it's very exciting news, and in fact, I have a son who works in the consulting business who's already working with his bosses to try to say, let me help you find some qualified people with disabilities to do all this fantastic work for you. Well, that is great. I'm going to tell you what, 40 years. You know, someone said to me, oh, when did this new thing come out? I said, new thing? New thing. No, this was 1973, just never enforced until now. So kudos to President Obama and the administration. I Thank mean, you. this is awesome. Sue, awesome. All of you, congratulations. Well, I will pass it along to everyone who I know has worked so hard on this. All right. Well, Sue, as I mentioned already, so many people know you in the disability community. And by the way, one of them who always listens to the show is Yoshiko Dart. So, Yoshiko, how about 503? I'll bet Justin would just be loving life. Uh, But, Sue... (laughs) I want everyone to know about you because this show is heard across the country and you've done so much in the administration for people with disabilities. So maybe you could take a few minutes, tell everyone how and why you first became involved in disability advocacy. Sure thing. Um, I have three sons. Uh, My son Charlie was born in 1982 and diagnosed in 1983 with what were obviously profound disabilities, um, disabilities that would affect him all of his life. Charlie was was the middle brother of three, um, and he, uh, boy, he had a lot of disability. He had quadriplegia. He didn't speak. He was legally blind. He had epilepsy, um, which was developing more and more toward the end of his life. He was also a big, friendly, blonde kid in a wheelchair with a friendly and charming smile and um, just a, a wonderful guy, and I was his mom, and so I had to become an advocate, as many of us do. Um, in preschool, I noticed that he was 
learning certain behaviors from other kids in his segregated classroom. And so I asked about, well, why wouldn't we want him to go to school with the kids who don't have disabilities so he could be learning more of the stuff we want him to be learning? And that kind of put me on a track where someone gave me a an application to Partners in Policymaking in Minnesota. I was part of the third class there. Wonderful program. I'm sure you have listeners who are uh, graduates of that program. There I met Ed Roberts, who really pulled me out of a very strange place where a lot of parents, you know, we uh, parents are taught to trust the medical world, and that's where kind of I was. And Ed pointed out to me that it's people with disabilities who tell us uh, where we need to go, and he helped me, I think, really become not just a better mother but a decent advocate in that process. That led to some Senate testimony, to a Kennedy Fellowship, to a White House appointment in developmental disability in uh, the Clinton administration. I've been kind of around D.C. for a while ever since, hard place to leave, and I'm just thrilled to be part of the Obama administration. Well, I can see why, and I have to tell you, first of all, Sue, you have our sympathies about your son. Obviously, his spirit will never go away, Um, but you know what I have to say? You give me the mother of a child with a disability, look out. Talk about powerhouse. There's no stopping the person. And what a great thing that you would have as your mentor, Ed Roberts, He really did so much to just show me, well, A, that it was possible to be in charge of your life if you had a lot of disability. Now, Ed was a genius, obviously, and that was a special characteristic of his, but he really taught me to listen carefully to people with disabilities, and they would tell us what they wanted. I think that's the powerful partnership. Parents kind of nothing they won't do for their kid. But sometimes we get locked up in a sort of charity model that says there's nothing we won't do for our children. And what we really should be learning is that there's nothing we can't do with our children. So as long as we stand next to them and help them make sure their voice is heard, I think that's where the real power comes from. And you have taken that. See, the thing I love about you is you're a person that gives back. And I just want all of you to know about Sue Swenson. She is the real deal, and she is a phenomenal person. She really so is. Kind. Thank you And so much. we have our first question for you from Candy in Texas. And the question is, congratulations, Assistant Secretary, for everything you're doing to help people with disabilities. My first question is, what gives a parent with a disability the strength to keep moving on? Wow, that is such a great question. And I, I think a couple of things that I noticed in my life, and Charlie only died this last January, and I think these are still sources of of strength. You have to keep going on even when your son or daughter is no longer with you. Um, First, have friends. So the great poet Wallace Stevens said, sometimes the truth uh, depends upon a a walk around the lake. So have friends who are other parents of kids with disabilities and or people with disabilities especially. People who can help you understand that this is a very long-term 
effort that you're signed on for. This isn't something where you take your wins and losses this week or next week or next month, but you're signed on for a lifetime. And you need a lot of people around you to kind of keep reminding you of that, that it's not worth it to win a tactical battle for a short-term gain if it means you're going to lose your whole uh, platform moving forward. So that's the first thing. Second, I think if you can um, really reach out to people in other communities of diversity and realize that our struggle and their struggles are the same, and when we work not just to make life better for our kid with his plan, but to make life better for all children and all children with disabilities and all children who belong to other uh, identity groups, that it's just, it just gives us that much more power and ability to keep going. It's really hard otherwise. It's hard to, uh, it's hard to not feel selfish. It's not to hard, not feel like, um, like you're just always wanting more and more and more. So, I mean, for me, the the place where I really turned around was when I realized that since Charlie was going to need support all of his life, the way that I could give back would be to try to help him live simply so that other people could simply live and try to reduce his budget and reduce the the footprint of his services. And I learned that that not only gave him more freedom, but it helped me look other people in the eye too. It's sometimes the message of advocacy is just a little bit too grasping for some of us to take on. So you have to figure out where your strength comes from. And have friends. I think that's the best answer. Well, and I agree with you. I think that's a great answer. Uh, but for other people listening to the show, you know, when you are the mother of a child with a disability, what's it like dealing with the outside world? I mean, schools, kindergarten, church, synagogues, uh, friends, relatives, you know, what's that like? So, now, this is not me, the Deputy Assistant Secretary. This is me, the mommy. Um, sometimes you feel like the least welcome person in the world. Sometimes you feel like you are, like nobody wants you there, and it is very hard. It is very hard to just be present when you feel that you're that you're not uh, a welcome part of your community. Um, I think one of the things, one of the reasons to have friends is so that you can talk about them, that with them, but so also you, so you can get courage to go and talk to the people who run the school and say, hey, you know what, I know you don't mean this, but here's what it feels like. And um, I think if you can make peace with your pain and your anger and let it drive you rather than just becoming anger, it's a better thing. So I, I have found that most people who looked at me funny when I was out with Charlie, you know, people would stare at me. And after a while, and stare at Charlie, and after a while, I figured out they probably had a loved one who had a disability who maybe didn't grow up at home or maybe didn't get a chance to go out, and maybe they were trying to figure out how could I make that work when they couldn't make it work. So you try to have more gentle interpretations, but, you know, here's the thing. An IEP is an individualized education plan. 
And it's really hard to go to a school. What you really want is for the school to be inclusive, for all children to be welcomed, for all children to be educated. You want to see that all around you, not just for your child, but for all of the children. And it's really hard to do that from an individual planning process. So that would be the other thing I would say is get involved with the PTA, get involved with the other decision-making bodies in your kid's life. If you're at the church, volunteer at the church and see what happens. Because I have pretty much found in my life with Charlie that if you go with an open heart and say, here's how we need to make this better so that everyone feels welcome, people are pretty amazing. They will step up, and it's not its not something you need to fear if you're willing to just go there and take that risk. It's hard. you you got to have friends to do that. You can't do that by yourself. Yeah, that makes such a difference. Um, that really does, because I know working with children with epilepsy same thing, what you said. You know, yeah. all you have to do is have a seizure in front of people, and yep. it's like a whole new world. It's I don't yep. want you around. Uh, that that, but, but it's a whole new a... it's a whole new fear. People are terrified. They they yeah. don't know what to do, and therefore your present make, presence makes them feel incompetent. Mm-hmm. And so then that oh, never thought of it that way. Spiral, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, never thought of that. Well, listen, we have Sue Swenson with us today, Assistant Secretary in the Department of Education, and we are going to come right back. But first, we have to go to break. If you just tuned in, this is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back with the Assistant Secretary. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than 3 million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. How do you know if you're living with an addict? If you think you know all the recognizable signs, you probably don't. If you're listening to and reading from the so-called experts, you probably don't. You need to hear from a parent, just like yourself, who has been there and can tell you what it's like firsthand. Please listen to Afflicted by Addiction with Bradley DeHaven, 
Our program is heard every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. It just might save your life or the life of someone you love. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joy Spender. Hey, welcome back. If you just joined us, we have as our guest today Sue Swenson, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Special Education and Rehabilitative Services from the United States Department of Education, and she was gracious enough to join us today on the show. And oh, it's my pleasure, Sue, Joyce. Oh, it's wonderful to have you, Sue. And for people who are listening to the show, you know, you talked about how you have to deal with the medical people, with schools, with everything. So what advice do you have for people listening to the show who are raising a child with a disability? Oh, man, that's such a hard question. You know, we each live in our own world, and... Um, it's hard for me to know what other people need and what their situations are. Um, I think wherever your source of strength was before you had a child with a disability, you should maybe redouble your efforts to get a hold of that now that you do have a child with a disability. The other thing I'll say is um, everybody always says our kids should be self-determined and we should have self-determination and we should do everything we can so they can make decisions and have their life be the way they want their life to be. And sometimes we forget that we have to be self-determined if we're going to be able to raise self-determined children. So we should be asking the questions, well, when does the mom get self-determination? And we should learn to speak up for ourselves and advocate for ourselves as parents because that way we will be better positioned to really uh, bring our best energy to our kids so that they can uh, learn from us and then so that we can help them grow up so that they can be in charge of their own lives. Oh, that is such good, good advice. And this must be the Southern South Day because now we have a question from Lucinda in Alabama. And here's the question, and it is, um, Assistant Secretary, I don't know if you know about this or not, but it's surprising to me that many young people with disabilities are in nursing homes. Why is that? Is that because they have such significant disabilities? And do I need to worry about that at some point with my daughter? That I am aware of it. I've been tracking it for several years. Um, the Institute on Community Inclusion, RRTC on Community Living at the University of Minnesota, publishes a report that's funded by the National Institute of Disability Rehabilitation Research here at the U.S. Department of Ed, and every year they will track nursing home um, populations by age group. So it's a, it's a good resource to have if you're an advocate and you want to be watching this. Uh, a couple of things I'll tell again? you. This is a very fast-growing category. What's happening is young people are being discharged from hospital situations and because their homes are not accessible or do not have the care that they need or do not have the supports that they need, these kids are being discharged to nursing homes. 
because there isn't anything else around that has what we need to be able to take care of kids. The United States is a patchwork quilt. We have 50 states in all of the territories, and every place has a different plan of what's available and how we support people. Um, Very hard to keep track of that. You might want to look at a report called the State of the States in Developmental Disabilities out of the University of Colorado at Boulder. They will track those numbers year to year to help you see really what's the difference between states that still have large amounts of money locked up in the old institutional models, which frankly the young parents don't want. I mean, if you have a choice between your kid going into a nursing home or an institution, you're going to pick a nursing home. And then states where that are really investing most of their money in the much more cost-effective and uh, freedom-loving community support system. So can we build things so that every family and every community will have what it needs to be able to raise and nurture and love and enjoy their son or daughter with disabilities at home? We can do that. Many states are doing it. Um, but it's going to take a lot of state-based advocacy to make that happen. And so that's my best answer to that one is this is a state policy issue, and I'm sure your advocacy will make a difference. I bet a lot of people are surprised hearing that because everyone, a lot of people think it's all older people. Yeah, I bet they'd be surprised to know that. There was just a a Department of Justice decision uh, in Texas uh, with their very large numbers of children in nursing homes. And you know what? I have a friend who's an advocate down there who has been working on this for decades, and I'm not going to name her, but she knows who she is. And this is a sad situation. This is a place where she used to do drop-in calls on these nursing homes and on one Sunday morning, one Sunday afternoon, all the children were still in their pajamas at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, sitting in a room with a tape recorder and a mannequin, and the tape recorder was reading stories to them. Uh, now, that just makes me want to cry. Me too. That's but, horrible. Yeah, it is. And it tells you what the whole point of view is for these kids. It's custodial care. It's not about how do we enrich these children's lives? How do we find their skills and strengths? How do we yeah, help them connect to their families? Edu- where are they going with education? Right, exactly. So we're. I think DOJ is taking a huge lead on this, and they're very much out in front on it. And Eve Hill and the other people over there just deserve tremendous kudos for the work that they're doing. Yes, thank God. Thank God we have people doing that for us. Well, yep. you know, I have many, many parents that call me and talk about that, what you talked about, where they feel their child with a disability could be mainstreamed, uh, but no, they don't want to do that, and they want to keep them, you know, with all the other children in special education, or, you know, there is no um, IEP plan I'm sure there are many things, but in your opinion, including the bar being lowered, but in your opinion, what is the biggest barrier for children with disabilities in our schools today? 
Joyce, I think it's what you said before. It's it's the climate. It's the school climate. It's is there a sense of welcome? Is there a sense that all of these children belong to us? Or when you go to the school, do you have a feeling that they're they're just saying to you, oh well, when we're done with all the regular kids, then we'll come and and we'll meet your child's needs. And that's not going to meet our test of what we want to have happen. We want access to the general education curriculum. We want access to the general education classroom. We want our kids to be educated right alongside of everyone else. You never know. A kid may have a really serious disability, but a tremendous strength in mathematics or physics or English language or whatever it is. And you just don't know who you're keeping out of the classroom when you're having a kid with a disability stay out of the regular classroom. So, you know, the president has a goal that we're going to increase our our college graduation again and get it to the point where we have a higher percentage of college graduates than any other country in the world. And if we're going to do that, we've got to be able to include kids with disabilities. Most of the kids who have disabilities in the United States have a learning disability. It's a specific and well-known little disability that the family deals with. If it's not supported, it can just be disastrous. But if it is supported, those kids can grow up and be fantastic contributors to our society. 15%, somebody told me the other day, and I haven't checked this out, but somebody said 15% of CEOs in this country have dyslexia or a learning disability because it teaches you how to think different, to, to have that challenge in your life. Well, we should not be limiting those kids in school in that case. We should be giving them every chance they need. For my own son, he was so disabled that the school, you know, couldn't understand why I would want him in a room with kids who were learning to read and write. And I said, well, he has to learn to get along with other people in his life. He has to, he's going to be dependent on other people for his whole life. And indeed he was. And, um, he has to be with other people if he's going to learn how to do that. And I think the proudest moment I had in his education, he was about 23 years old, and somebody said to me, you know, Sue, I know a lot of really profoundly disabled kids, and your son is does not expect other people to do things for him. He's not. He's very self-contained and self-directed and I just thought that was great, and it's because he was with other kids all the time. It was because he wasn't stuck off somewhere else. So we want that for every kid. It's hard. You'll find a lot of good language on our website talking about access to the general education curriculum and environment. You'll find Congress has been very clear about this. These are clear goals of the nation. This is not something that some advocates are making up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. We had Dr. Sally Shaywitz on the show from Yale, who that's, you know, expert in the United States on learning disabilities, specifically dyslexia. And something that she mentioned is that, you know, in education, when that is ignored or when there isn't the proper support, it's just so destructive to that oh. person and the entire family. Yep, Absolutely. And we have so many resources available through OSERS. We have Bookshare that we support that helps kids learn how to read using technology. We have um, 
positive behavior inventions and interventions and support website. We have all kinds of resources for schools. 18,000 school buildings are being served by our positive behavior support project through the web. And we just feel like we're putting some resources in place so that schools can no longer say, oh, we can't do that. We don't know how. We can't afford it because the resources are there. You just need to find them. And it does help to let the kid have dyslexia and be proud of it, like all other kids with disabilities. But learning disabilities, ADHD, these are all disabilities that children can be proud of having and of learning their accommodations and, and moving forward in their lives. It's That's probably the key point. It's you know, the, and that is right. This is what I tell people with epilepsy, young people. Don't be ashamed. Right. You know, same thing with dyslexia. Does not mean stupid, means learn differently. Right. That's exactly. what it means. And you do not ever need to be ashamed. Um, and I know we have several more things to go over with you, uh, Sue, but we do I have just want to say, I know a lot yes. of people with intellectual disabilities, and I don't know anybody who's stupid. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's uh, there's all kinds of disabilities in this world that are just different ways of doing things and looking at things and seeing things and they all bring strengths along with whatever the weakness happens to be. It's just, it's an amazing fact once you get to the point where you can see it that way. Yeah, yep. it is, and that's the way you should see it. Uh, Terry from Kansas wants to know, uh, Assistant Secretary, what do you do if you know your child is being treated incorrectly at school, made to be held back? Uh, what, what advice do you have? Okay, first advice is make contact with your parent training and information center in your state um, and talk to them. Talk to other families in your school. Um, it's it's hard to go in to the IEP with only an assessment of your child's deficits. So I would encourage you as a parent, you know your child's strengths and their opportunities, sit down and write a little one-page memo that says, here are Charlie's strengths, here are some of his weaknesses, here are the things I dream for him that I want for him when he grows up, and these are the things that are nightmares that I'm just really worried about that these things will happen to him. And be honest and put your heart into it and put it on paper Take that to the IEP meeting and say, let's start by talking about these things instead of with the assessment of the deficits that are have been determined through the testing process. Mm-hmm. And I would be really surprised if that didn't turn it around and help people understand a little bit more about what you were trying to achieve for your child. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard, and it's not in the law, and there's no right to do it, and it's not part of due process, but I think it's a pretty good meeting philosophy. There's a book you can get almost anywhere. It's called Getting to Yes. It's a book about negotiating, and it helps you think through, well, what happens if we can't agree, and it helps you work with the school and help them see reaching an agreement about a better plan is in everyone's best interest. So I highly recommend that book. It's Fisher and Urey. It comes out of the Harvard Negotiation Project, and it's just a, a wonderful 
book. It was a great tool for me when I felt like my son was being left out. Getting to yes. Okay, and if you just joined us right now, we're talking to Deputy Assistant Secretary for Special Education and Rehabilitative Services from the United States Department of Education, a presidential appointee. And I think we have a caller on the line. Uh, Are you on the line, caller? Yes, Joyce, this is Peggy. Hey, Peggy, how are you? I'm good, Joyce. How are you? Good. Thank you for calling in. No problem. Um, listen, Joyce I, I, and um, Secretary, thank you so much for taking the time to, to be with us this afternoon. And I was actually calling, wondering um, maybe if you could help us a little bit more with this getting to yes kind of theme, if you could talk about that a little bit more. Um, you know, I work with an Epilepsy Foundation affiliate, a local affiliate, and we work so often with parents who are having a difficult time with that negotiation skill, and it is sometimes so overwhelming for parents who have to go to school and, and try to work with these very large teams of folks who, um, you know, they kind of come into those meetings sort of as a team and identifying with one another, and they work together every day, and, you know, and then the parent comes into the room sort of on their own, and it, it can be very intimidating, yep. and yep. it's very hard for the parent, I think, sometimes to kind of know how to approach that. And, and I'm wondering, since you have so many wonderful experiences, both professionally and personally, you know, maybe you can share with us what some of those pitfalls we might easily fall into on the other side of that table that maybe we could avoid. Well, and I think a, a couple of things I want to say about that, and I, I think Peggy, you've really put your finger on a real problem that we have or a real opportunity that presents itself. So, again, if you can bring your friends, people who know your child, to the IEP meeting, so it's not just you and your husband sitting there, that helps. If you can bring your child as early as possible, it is their IEP meeting after all. There are many things that even an IEP team won't say in front of a young person who has a disability. Right. And it's it's important to have the reality of the child with a disability and their experience be present in the room. I have never stacked an IEP team meeting, but I have brought other advocates who I thought had something to say who really knew Charlie or knew my family. I my my older son and some of his friends would attend IEP meetings because they knew Charlie and they were a couple of years ahead of him in school. For example, when he went to middle school, my son Will's friend John was at the IEP meeting and the school said, oh, we have an inclusion program for children like Charlie. And John oh, said, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they said, no, really? And he said, no, you include him during lunch and we don't even really see him at lunch. They have separate tables. Right. Well, that was a point of view that I, as a parent, really didn't have, I didn't have any way of knowing that. So the fact that this young man who really knew Charlie very well and had known him for years was there and would say, no, he doesn't belong in that little room down at the end of the hall. He belongs out here where everybody else is. And um, So you got to stack it. But getting to yes is more about trying to understand maybe two 
when you might be too rigid in what you want. So mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. we want completely uh, individualized learning supports delivered all day long, but in a general education classroom. Sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes what you need is little bits of support or support that comes in and then fades out of the way. Sometimes what the school is asking for really isn't a bad thing, and you need to let down your guard a little bit and really think it through and think, huh, what, you know, what... um, what else might work? What is it about this that might work? The thing that always confounded me is I'm not an educator. <laughs> so I would go to Charlie's meetings, and they would say, well, what do you want his IEP to be? And it's like, no, I'm not an educator. I want you to tell me what's possible. But right. I want him to have goals that he has to really work at. I don't want him to just skate through school with everybody peeling a grape for him and everything being easy and you know, let's have some goals that are real goals, not this is stuff we already know he can do so that we won't get in and get him in trouble when he doesn't right. reach the goals. Right. So anyway, um, it, there is a lot of that, figuring out what's the best alternative to not having agreement. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of schools where kids win the battle of the IEP but if you have their hands, but you don't have their heart and you don't have their head, you're not really going to get a great education. Teachers need to be able to respond in the moment to the child. And to do that, you really need to have them engaged as real experts and real teachers and real people, not just people who are cranking through a plan. The other thing I tell people all the time, and this is a little bit weird, but if you go to school and demand compliance with the law, that's the same thing as if I took you to a fine restaurant and the waiter came by and he said, what would you like for lunch? And you say, I don't care, but it better not have any bugs in it. (laughs) Right. Right. Compliance is the lowest possible denominator. It is the lowest level of service that is acceptable by the law. Your goal as parents and educators should be way beyond compliance. It should be it should be what's the best we can do? How how can we turn this into a real asset for everyone in the school? And not just what's the least we can do without being sued. Right. And I think once you turn that moral corner with your team then everything falls into place. It's not easy to get there, but go ahead and use my story if that helps. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's great for the student to come to the IEP meeting. I think that that's really very important because they're such a central part of that relationship, and I think it's relationship building. And it's what the disability community teaches us, nothing about me without me. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking my call, and thank you Thanks so for much for question, everything Peggy. that you do for, for all of us and, and for um, all of our students. Thank well, you. Thanks. Hey, Peggy, thanks for calling in. Thank Epilepsy you, Joyce. Foundation of Western and Central PA. Thanks, Joyce. A great place to find allies. Well, you know, that is a good question because i got to tell you, it is hard. 
it is hard for many parents knowing what to do. So yep. I appreciate you, you know, giving them that advice. And I must tell you, a national problem I'm dealing with, Sue, is children with disabilities being brutally bullied in schools. Yep. Um, you know, do you have any advice about that? Boy, we just issued a letter about it, and um, a dear colleague came out, I guess it was a week and a half ago, from the brilliant uh, director of OSEP, Dr. Melody Musgrove, and from my boss, Michael Uden. You can find it online. It's a dear colleague letter. Um, really makes some very key points about bullying. That is, the school is responsible to deliver a free, appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment. And just because a child is bullied doesn't give you the right to move the child to a different classroom. That has been a serious problem for a lot of kids with disabilities where instead of the bully being dealt with, the victim is is moved to a more restrictive environment. And we have tried to clarify here that that's just not appropriate. There are several um, terrific uh, tools attached to this letter. If you Google OSEP, O-E-S-E-P, bullying letter, I'm sure it will pop up. Otherwise, it's on our website uh, at ed.gov. And um, really good, good question. Bullying is a hideous problem. Our PTI, what was our, what is our national center in uh, Minnesota, Pacer Center, has a very interesting toolkit on bullying um, at www.pacer.org/bullying. They've organized this year, Wednesday, October 9th, as Unity Day to try to point out that it's not just the child who's bullied who gets harmed, but it's everyone around that child who sees this unfair thing happening. Bullying is just bad for everyone. It's bad for the bully, it's bad for the victim, and it's bad for the innocent bystanders. So we really need to get a grip on this stuff. Um, there are some emerging fantastic efforts. Special Olympics has special has wonderful efforts through its um, unified sports program. The Bully Project, uh, the Bully Movie, I don't know if you saw that, Joyce. Powerful movie. Um, they have wonderful resources on their website, too, which is called thebullyproject.org. This is, um, Charlie was never bullied, as far as I could tell, because he just didn't respond. And bullies thrive off of that fear response that they can create and I don't think Charlie ever gave that back to anybody. But my other sons were acutely aware when children were being bullied, and sometimes, frankly, by teachers, but mostly by other children. Um, we just have to do a better job in this country of not thinking that somehow is a good thing for a boy to be mean and tough or for a girl to be mean and tough. It doesn't mean that you're strong, and we just have to get better at teaching our kids about that. Because I do this nationally, and when you add to this, when you add Facebook, 
all this other, you know, Facebook, all the cyberbullying, saying you're ugly, you're terrible. And I got to tell you what, Sue, a lot of it has, it's terrible with those students with learning disabilities because as soon as they go into another class, that's it. You're stupid, you're dumb, you're this, you're that. And as you well know, when you're in school, what your peers think is very powerful. Yep. Oh, and I mean, it's... I think the other thing we as parents can do is help our children realize that there are so many reasons to be bullied that it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with them. It's just, it's just other kids are evil. And if they, if they weren't making fun of this kid for that reason, they'd be making fun of some other kid for some other reason. And, um, I don't know. I think we should all be talking to our kids. I think that's why the things like the Pacer Center project with Unity Day and helping everyone stand up about this is a really important project. So whether your child has a disability or not, you should have conversations, open conversations. Do you see bullying going on in your school? Does it make you uncomfortable? Is anything happening that I need to be aware of? Do we need grown-ups to step in somewhere. Um, no, it's it's for all of us to make the school climate better for all children. And none of us benefits when children are being driven to depression or to suicide or to worse. It's it's just a terrible thing, and we all need to step up and do our part to make that not happen. Yes. Watch that movie, but watch that movie. Oh, oh, watch that movie. I saw it three times, and I sobbed every time I saw it. It's just you can't escape from it. And I don't know if you heard this speech recently that George Saunders made, but he said the thing that he was most that he most remembered from his childhood was failures of kindness. His own failures of kindness. That's why I say we should talk to all of our children and make sure they have the courage to be kind. Failures to kindness. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a good, that's, that's, that is true. Well, here you are, Deputy Assistant Secretary, in this uh, powerful role that you have at Osters. What, what do you hope to achieve while you're in this position? Oh, that's such a good question, Joyce. I mean, we're all working on the president's goal of of graduation outcomes and college graduations, the secretary's goal of making sure that every child leaves school ready for a career or college. And we know that that includes children with disabilities. We know it includes a large number of children with disabilities. And... You know, you have to start early on that one. You have to start when in preschool sometimes, helping children with disabilities grow up to expect to have a career or to go to college. And um, so that kind of folds into everything that we're doing in our new uh, early learning initiative. It definitely will be deeply related to children with disabilities and how to make their lives better starting at an early age. Um, my boss, Assistant Secretary, uh, Acting Assistant Secretary Michael Uden, has been leading us very, very ably in OSERS 
to think much more deeply about how inclusion and equity and opportunity are part of our work every day and how it impacts what we do. Um, by training, I'm a manager, so I'm interested in how can we help the federal workforce be more included and be more equitable and be more have more opportunities to advance the people who are trying to do this great work for the nation. So that's a big part of what I do. But I would have to say in my heart, I'm, I know I knew Sergeant Shriver a little bit in my life. I had this great pleasure of knowing him, and he always said, if you had a magic wand, what would you do? So I'll tell you that. <laughs> if I had a magic wand, I would build a whole different management technology for disability supports and services in the United States. I would make it possible for us to actually know what's happening in real time and help school districts and schools and states and and us, the feds, all manage in real time, which right now we can't really do. And until we get a bump in the economy, we're probably not going to be able to invest and too much to do that, but we do invest a lot in assistive technology. We invest a lot in communications technology, and I hope during my tenure I see an increased investment in management technology. Oh, that would be awesome. It that would be. would be awesome. You know, if he would ask me that, you know what I would say? I would say, <clears throat> I wish I was able to make this little potion that you give to kids in school to let them see into the future so when they, they would know that when they get out of school, they would think, what? I cared about what they said? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I That's don't think that's going to happen. I'm not going to get that potion. <clears throat> but Well, it's a potion we all have. It's, it's, if a child gets enough love, then they have that potion as they go yeah, along. And that's, yeah, that sometimes you got to right. grow up before you see it. But yeah, but that's a good way. That's a good way to explain that. Well, you have already done so much in your life, so I have to ask you this. Obviously, someone has influenced you. So, who who is your role model? You know, um, I guess I'm going to speak directly to you because I think we're women of a certain age. I think women of our age are casting about looking at how other women achieve what they achieve. And it's it's kind of a new world out there for us. Our mothers couldn't really show us this pathway. And my mother worked her whole life and was a professional person, but she couldn't ever really um, show me what it meant to do the kind of work that I'm doing now. She would have been great at it, but... So, I don't know. I think I think we are each other's role models, Joyce. I think we go around in our lives and we find pieces of insight and strength and and build up our own lives out of what we see. Certainly in the disability field, I've learned enormously from Judy Human and Tony Coelho and Ed Roberts and so many different people who have stepped up and Sometimes the message they have, though, is, yeah, just invent it yourself. Go ahead. You you can do it. Just move. Just do it. And that's a good role model to have, I guess. And yeah, no, that is. That is a good way to think about it. Yeah. Well, listen, you have accomplished so much in your life. 
already. What would you what would you say is your greatest accomplishment? Um I think my greatest accomplishment is trust. I think to be at the level I am and to have gone through so much to bring my son into an inclusive world and to come out the other end trusting that my nation is just it's I'm really proud of that. I'm proud that I'm able to trust that if things are bad now, they will get better, and we can work on them, and we can work together. And I've seen so many times in my life people just step up and do more than you could ever ask them to do. Charlie had an assistant, Nate, who worked with him, I swear to you, Joyce, for 15 years. I mean, you can't ask another human being to do that, and yet there it was. And um, I, I don't know. I guess trusting my nation and trusting my fellow man is something I'm really proud of in my life. I, the other thing is it was a big accomplishment for me to learn how to listen to Charlie. I kind of grew up in a world of intellect and education, and I'm very proud of my education, and I talk about it a lot and I had a son who didn't speak and as far as I know didn't read and um but I always tell people he he loved opera and he would watch operas on DVDs and he would cry in all the right places and that always made me think well he may have every disability in the book but his soul is not disabled <laughs> He's a, wow, that is he, a good way. Yeah, he's right. He's a full human being. And right. I learned to listen to him and to respect him, and that's, I think, a real accomplishment, too, to not always say, oh, Charlie, you know, you'll be a real person when you learn to do this and this and the other thing, but to just listen to him. I learned that well, lesson I, in I public. Well, I want to tell you, I want to thank you for being our guest today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It was so wonderful to have you on the show. And, you know, we end every show with a quote from a famous civil rights leader. And today it is, we know that equality has never existed and never will, but we do insist that equality of opportunity still must be sought, said President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Oh, wonderful. Yes. This is Joyce Bender with Assistant Secretary Sue Swenson on Disability Matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.